Kia ora, and O'Brien tuku ingoa, he kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. After the Tampa, Abbas Nazari was just seven when his family, fearing Taliban persecution, fled Afghanistan, embarking on a desperate and dangerous journey that ultimately led him to New Zealand. Crammed with more than 400 other asylum seekers on a sinking fishing boat in the Indian Ocean, they were saved by cargo ship Tampa in a dramatic rescue. After being rejected by Australia, some of the group, including Nazari's family, were offered asylum here. He has gone on to become a Fulbright Scholar, completing a Master's in Security Studies from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and authoring the moving memoir, After the Tampa. As the rise of the Taliban once again haunts the people of his homeland, Nazari reflects on questions of home and security, challenge and hope, opportunity and resilience, in conversation with Nikki Mando. Ena mana, ena reo, ena iwi, tēnā koto katoa. Ko Nikki Mando toku enua, tēnā koto katoa. Wear a mask if you want. Uh, go outside if you feel unwell. All the other things. Um, go and buy Abbas's book. Uh, Abbas's book. Thank you. <laughs> um, and we'll have questions at the end. So about ten minutes of questions. Um, we'll we'll um, indicate that. Abbas, I have a. I have something there. Salam. Salam Chitur Hasten. That means, how are you, by the way, for those who don't know. <laughs> thank you so much, what a wonderful introduction, and, and thank you all for coming and taking the time out of the afternoon to join us to talk about this book. Um, I'm good, I'm good, and it's, and it's uh, especially... Did you do that in um, Hazara for me? Chuturasti Khubim Tashakur, you know, I'm good, thank you. It's uh, lovely to talk to you. I'm not gonna give a big introduction because that's what the book's about, so, but I do want to just share one thing. So one of the awesome things about being a chair of a Writers' Festival session is that you get a little bit of a sneak preview, so about a month or so before we get in touch with each other. So yeah, about a month ago, I'm in Auckland, um, Abbas is in Christchurch, and we have a phone call. And one of the first things Abbas says to me is, why you? Why is it yeah. you um, doing the talk? Yeah, Nikki, and why you? Why me? And it was, it was a really interesting question. And I was a little bit, you know, a thousand years in journalism, and nobody has ever asked me that question before. But then when I was thinking about it, it's such a good question because it's about storytelling, but about the audience for your storytelling. So the first question I want to ask you is, why did you write the book? Why did you tell your story? And who were you telling it for? Yeah, that's a really good question, Nikki. And, um why, why did I write this book? Um, you know, I was approached to write this book by the wonderful team at Allen and Unwin, some of whom are in the audience today, um, to whom I owe a lot of debt of thanks to. Uh, when I started writing this, and I did it very old school, I was writing freehand at coffee shops and cafes across Washington, D.C. during the lockdown. The number one question in the back of my mind was, when this book is published and it's sitting on the shelves, you know, of the, uh, hopefully in the top 10 Whitcalls bestseller list, but, <laughs> and we did, we did better than that. When it's sitting on the shelves and someone goes past and picks it up, what do I want them to take out of it? What is the number one thing I want them to remember about this book? And it took me a hell of a long time to answer that question, but the, the answer that I reached that was most profound for me was, when we talk about refugees, when it comes up in the media, by and large, the stories are largely negative. Uh, the imagery, the perceptions, the misconceptions that we have about refugees generally tend to be quite negative. Um, you know, that perhaps they are too dependent, perhaps they might not be a cultural fit, perhaps these guys might not like our country as much as we do, et cetera, et cetera. There might be a grain of truth to that, usually because people have misconceptions based on things that they don't know. So I said, if one reader picks up this book, I want them to go away and have the different understanding and a different 
perspective on refugees. One that shows that, look, these guys, obviously, their story, their arrival and origin story to Aotearoa New Zealand might be a little bit different, but by and large, after a year, two, three, five years, whatever, uh, they are just part and parcel of New Zealand society. And one of the fabulous things about the book, and it is fabulous, is the descriptions of the early part of your life, mm. because they are hard, as in harsh, the, where you live, but they're happy, it's a great place. Tell me about your village, tell me about your childhood. That's a really good place to start. Um, the book, by the way, is just structured very simply. It's, in my mind, it's a book in three parts. First part is about our life and growing up in Afghanistan. The second part is obviously the journey that we went on. And the third part is about our life uh, living and growing up in, in, in New Zealand. So where we started, we started right here. You know, we started here in the little village of Sangjoy. Sangjoy, Afghanistan. Sangjoy translates to Rock Creek. Um, and it lives up to that name. I took this photo myself in 2012 when I went back to Afghanistan for the first time since we had left, standing up on a hilltop, looking down at the valley. And as you can see, it's a place of incredible beauty. It's lush, it's green, it's fertile. There's a lovely river that's fed by snowmelt and alpine lakes far away at the tail end of the Hindu Kush mountain range. It comes down and that kind of river is the life source, provides water for animals, for feeding, for drinking, all the rest of it. It's a place of incredible beauty, tranquility, right? Hot, dry summers, blistering cold winters, very much like central Otago. And it is an image that I love so much because when I talk about it and when I describe it in these words, it is so different to what most people think of when they think of Afghanistan, right? It's, it, this is not the image that we have, but yet this was my reality. Tell me about your family. Um, tell me about life as a kid. You know, I grew up running around those hills and, and swimming in the rivers. And, uh, and obviously, as a child, everything, uh, I don't want to simplify it, right, it, it, and over-romanticize it. It was a very basic existence, right? Everyone was kind of subsistence farmers. You know, hopefully, you'd grow enough crops throughout the harvest, and they'll carry you through the winter. Any excess might be sold at the local markets. and. Uh, it was tough. It was man versus the elements. It was, some winters would wake up, you know, if there'd been a pretty bad blizzard, there might be snow right up above the door line. You know, it was a very, what you'd call, organic existence. <laughs> uh, Sangjoy is very isolated. It's high up in the central highlands. And what that isolation has meant is that we didn't have the, social, the, uh, the technical progress that you have in the cities, right? We didn't have running water or running electricity in our homes. Um, you know, water was the local communal well. Um, and so it was organic, but there was a certain kind of richness that exists in uh, rural communities in particular around the world, even here in New Zealand that exists. Everyone is tight-knit, everyone knows one another, takes care of one another, and that was the kind of village, that kind of lifestyle that we grew up in. What would you have imagined your life was going to be like? Oh, you know, the prospects of a young kid growing up in Afghanistan, you know, I was born in the early 90s, um, that was in the midst of the Civil War. So the prospects of a kid, any kid, male or female, you know, growing up in Afghanistan is, is pretty minimal. Assuming, you know, you lived uh, and you survived the war and the, and, the, and the insecurity that comes with that, you, you know, you might end up laboring, you might end up taking the family farm or the business, and, um, but it's very different depending on where you live and most importantly, the ethnic makeup. You know. I was gonna ask you, so yeah. you're a Hazara? That's right. Tell yeah. me about the Hazara people. So the Hazara Afghans, uh, you know, we, we trace our lineage back. Uh, Afghanistan's like a patchwork quilt of different groups. Um, it is just by sheer fortune or misfortune of its geography, so many people in, uh, have come and traveled across the country over many centuries and many millennia that it's a big, big melting pot of different faces and names and languages. And one of those people is the Hazara, which is my people. You know, I, we have Central Asian genetics, right? I always joke that Kingis Khan was my great uncle. Uh, it's a pretty good <laughs> uncle to have in, you know, in the history. But, uh, you know, we look a little bit different. We have Central Asian features. We speak a, a different language. We worship differently. And we, depending on which census or which data point you use, you know, anywhere between 15 to 25% of the population. Now, whenever there is 
uh, ethnic groups all vying for control and supremacy across the world, and not, this is not an Afghan thing, it's across the world. Um, it usually ends up that the person or the people that look different, the minority that looks different, speaks differently, maybe worships differently, has a different political opinion, they are the ones that uh, feel the sharp end of the stick uh, the most. And that was sadly the case of the Hazara, not just recently, but historically. And I, and I detail that in the book, just the many decades of kind of sustained oppression uh, against our people. Why were they particularly persecuted by the Taliban? You know, the, there's, books can be written about that with greater detail than my answer here, but in a 30 second version, basically, uh, you know, when the Taliban took over, they wanted to create what they called a pure Islamic state, which meant that there was no room particularly for religious minorities. You know, you either convert or you get out of the country. You know, those are two, your two choices. There was no room for minorities, and because political, dif sorry, religious differences tends to align themselves with political differences, which then aligns itself with maybe perhaps ethnic and sectarian differences, and so there's just no room for that whatsoever. And again, I don't want to delve into you know, deep Afghan politics, uh, but by and large, that was the crux of it. So you're six, seven, and the Taliban have come to power. You're in your village. What did you see? What, was, what happened in your village when the Taliban came to power? So Taliban kind of come in, and I say come in because they are funded and armed and trained and have their kind of military and ideological center across the border in, in southern or the tribal areas of Pakistan. So they come in to Afghanistan from the south, they take over uh, the southern part of the country in 1994. By 96, they control 90% of the population. You know, they are the preeminent power in Afghanistan. And this is when people start taking notice of what's happening in the country. Um, and there's, overnight, there's massive differences. They were initially welcomed because they were such a determined fighting force that they quickly got rid of, either killed or banished many of the, the commanders and the warlords that were actually doing much of the fighting in the Civil War. So they brought an end to the Civil War, right? And so a lot of people actually welcomed them and said, my goodness, we might finally have peace after three, four, five years. But quickly, it became very, very obvious that the system of government that they wished to establish in the country was one that nobody wanted to live under. We had overnight changes, a new name, a new flag, a new anthem, a new set of laws and social norms that they would implement with incredible brutality. And it would be, you know, the thing that most Westerners are very, very aware of in Afghanistan, it would be, uh, you know, the imposition of the all-covering all female burqa, which became synonymous with Afghanistan in the 90s. Now, that was a thing that you might have seen on the streets of maybe Kabul or some of the other cities every now and then. Uh, but that was, an, uh, you know, as foreign to us living in the villages as it was to many in the West. That was imposed. You know, that was one change. Women couldn't leave the home without a male chaperone. Girls couldn't go to school. You know, those are all kind of the, the smaller end of the scale and then you'd come in and, and, and it comes to law and order, you know, if you were perhaps, you know, caught stealing a loaf of bread or, or whatever, you might have your hand amputated uh, right there on the spot. Um, if what you about were, in your village? What about your life? And so all those changes were taking place in the major cities and gradually, uh, as they took control of the major cities, uh, they'd start to close in into the rural areas, into the central highlands. So thankfully, by our sheer isolation, that afforded us a lot of time to kind of see what was happening around us. Those who kind of, um, you know, sensed the change in the winds just immediately packed up and left and said, I wanted to leave before this comes to us. We didn't want to because of, you know, we had such a strong connection to the land and we never wanted to leave. How big is your family? How many? So, uh, you know, at the time it was mum and dad and five kids. Uh, but like many, many Afghan households, it's intergenerational, you know, so you've got uh, my uncles and cousins, we all kind of lived in the same homestead. And so, so, so the village started to, is that me? You guys hearing me? I think it's raining outside, let's just say it's that. We've got some mood lighting, have we? Um, it's what happens when you speak about the Taliban. They're listening right now, actually. <laughs> I was going to say. So it's not you know, the Taliban. When, when my book did number one on the bestseller list, I had an actual question to say, 
Um, I wonder if they're keeping an eye on the New Zealand bestseller charts. Like, can I go back to <laughs> Afghanistan? They'll be like, wait, didn't you? Yeah. Is it me? Can you guys hear that? Much better. Yes, <laughs> claps for this guy right here. <laughs> If Nikki's doesn't work, I'll just take over. <laughs> yeah. Um. How's that one? Yeah. I'm I'm number two. You are number. I'm number three now. Yeah. There we go. Perfect. Fantastic. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Pretend that didn't happen. So where were we? <laughs> um. Yeah, so that, that was, you so know. You're on your, fa you're yeah, on your family, you're telling our, us about yeah, your family. Living in our little village and, you know, just like we just had a little disruption here and we all laughed through it. The big disruption in our life was the Taliban taking over, right? And so we started to see more and more families leave, fewer, fewer kids in class, more and more houses boarded up. You know, remember when they add ghost chips uh, was a thing on TV? We saw had a lot of ghost houses, you know, where it was just, there would be more and more houses boarded up. And one day, it's only a matter of time before Dad said, look, we can no longer stay either. So tell us about that day. What, what happens? Your dad is saying, right, we're going. Yeah, you know, he says, it's no longer safe. Dad was a truck driver, so he was one of the few from our village who would venture out into the cities on his usual runs, and he'd come back and he'd bring kind of news from the outside world of, you know, so-and-so, this city close by is under Taliban control, or I saw this on the road, or all of that. So he kind of knew that the situation was worsening, and so one day he just says, look, we, we have to leave as well. And the extent of his plan was that we would just get out of the country, and given where we were just geographically in the country, it was easier for us to cross the border into Pakistan. So he says, look, tomorrow, you know, it's your last day at school, uh, you guys go say goodbye to your teachers and your friends when you come back. You know, I've got a friend of mine who's also a truck driver. Uh, we'll just jump in the back of his lorry and he'll just drive us out of here. And um, It's not as easy as that, though, is it? No, <laughs> you know, I made it sound simplistic, <laughs> but, you know, this lorry comes by late in the afternoon. We jump in the back of this thing, covering ourselves up in, like, tarpaulins and boxes and all of that kind of thing because we didn't want to be caught out on the highways because if you're caught, you know, you might get, uh, at the very least, you might get, you know, assaulted and beaten and robbed by either Taliban or you know, bandits who control the lawless areas in between the cities, or at the very worst, if you were caught by the Taliban, you might get killed and put on the side of the road to be made an example of. So over the course of about a week, you know, we traveled mostly under the cover of night uh, in the back of this truck going south down to the bottom of the country and eventually crossing the border into Quetta, Pakistan. And we had just become uh, refugees. See You've got a situation where your family needs to get out of Afghanistan. You're in danger. You go to Pakistan. Now, how does it go? What happens then? What, you're a family. You're a seven people who mm. need to decide what to do now. Yeah. That must be one hell of a decision. 
Yeah, that's right. And that's a really, really good point. You know, choices and decisions. Um, basically, it's, it's very hard to describe what it's like to be a refugee, but that, that, that's, that's the crux of it, that the choices are made for you or that the options are completely outside of your control. You know, here we are living in our little old village in Afghanistan, just trying to get by, and then we're now suddenly uprooted and displaced. And then now we're in a refugee camp in, another, in a foreign country, and that is our situation. Uh, we don't have a choice. And, and um, I'd like to do just a reading from, I'd like to do a reading uh, to just kind of signify exactly what that feels like. When we see a trail of desperate people fleeing conflict, perhaps on the TV, we miss the points in the time when a parent has to make a life-altering decision on behalf of a whole family. To stay or to go, to endure known misery or to march towards an unknown future. Caught between the endless chaos and an uncertain earth, we chose life. Some kind of future beckoned and desperation powered us to climb aboard. Today my mother recalls the curtain of fear that hung before her as she walked towards that boat. She battled with the voices in her head that in insistently urged her to stay on dry land, to cling to certainty, however bleak. With every step, she felt like she was dragging a heavy chain. Through, it, through teary eyes, she could hardly see the ladder as her feet, one by one, left solid ground. Um, that's a passage about when we were about to jump on board this boat. And yeah, it's right, you've, you've, you've got no decisions, right? When you're a refugee, you've got two options, living in a refugee camp. You, either you wait it out and you hope that the situation in your home country improves so that you can go back, right? And the often example that I give that points this out so well is that we all remember, what, 2010, 2011, when the Syrian civil war kicked off and all those families fleeing Damascus and Aleppo and elsewhere, they fled into neighboring Turkey and Jordan and Lebanon and wherever else might take them, right? They just fled the border, across the border, because it was safer. And their options were waited out. Perhaps we might be back next month or next summer or next Christmas, and that was 2010. 12 years later, those families are still trying to get by in those refugee camps because you don't know when or if the situation will ever improve. So that's option one, just wait it out, try to get by. And then option two is to wait it out here and apply through the United Nations Refugee Agency for offshore or overseas resettlement. You know, here's my family, here's our documents, here's our story, here's our evidence, willing to do a security check, willing to do a medical check, everything you need to know from me, I'm happy to provide it. But the sad reality, as we know, is that the number of people seeking resettlement is so high and the number of places globally is so low that you know, less than 1% less than of refugees are resettled around the world, less than 1%. And so the average wait time in refugee camps ends up being about 15 years, right? Whenever I tell this story, there's always one or two people in the audience of former refugee backgrounds who will say, yep, I stayed in Dadaab a refugee camp, or I stayed in Quetta, or I stayed in Jordan in refugee camps, you know, they were the lucky ones, because if they're in New Zealand, that meant that their wait perhaps was five years, or three years, or eight years. It's an insane, insane choice to have to make. So naturally, you look for another way out, you look for another path forward, and if you're a mom and dad, and you've got a few kids in tow, you're not gonna just wait it out and waste your life away in a refugee camp. If, you're, if you have the means, if you're willing to gamble it, if you're entrepreneurial, whatever you want to call it, you look for an alternative path forward, somewhere else. Why Australia? That was it, and for us, in Quetta, in 2001, that was to get to Australia. And that's a damn good question. I shared this joke last <laughs> night, so please, you guys laugh even louder this time. You know, we, I did a book tour in Melbourne last week, uh, last month, and some guy got up and he says, Abbas, why did you guys choose Australia? Was it because, you know, we just hosted the 2000 Sydney Olympics and we've done a bloody good job of it and Australia looked really attractive on TV? And I said, um, no, mate, you know, when we were living in the refugee camp, we didn't have quite time to watch the Olympics, right? But, uh, <laughs> but we did see an ad with a lovely young blonde girl in a bikini that said, where the bloody hell are you? <laughs> and it, uh, it said, you know, it's the place we needed to go. Um, why Australia? It's a good question. It's because uh, there are very, very few countries that are signatories to the UN Refugee Convention that grants people the right to seek asylum. So that means 
if there's a civil war, you know, if New Zealand were to collapse into civil war, right, North and South Island, right, um, I'm from Christchurch, I still support the Crusaders, <laughs> um, you know, we would all have, have the right to seek asylum in Australia. We'll all jump on our boats and our planes and try to get to Australia because Australia is a signatory to the UN Refugee Convention, which is signed back in the 50s. Very few countries are signatories to that. In many countries, those obviously, you know, the Western liberal democracies. If you draw a circle around Afghanistan or Pakistan where we were, the nearest countries are either Europe or uh, Australia at the bottom of the world. So that's why you see a lot of people trying to get on foot, jump on a boat, on a train, try to cross the Mediterranean to try and get to Europe because they know that they can put their application forward and say, can I have a fair go? So you're, you, the book starts, you're basically, your mum shakes you awake and you go to the sea, go to the ocean and there's this boat. I don't know whether, you've got a photo of the boat. Yeah, that's right. Um, I think this photo is amazing because when you read the book, until you get to the photo, you have no idea how small this boat is. So that's the Tampa, the container ship, and there's this little teeny boat. So you're, that, that bit that you told about your mum, mm -hmm. looking at this boat and all these people and going, do I risk my five children getting onto this boat? Yeah. And your dad is going, we're going. Your mum's <laughs> going, I can't, you know. It must have been a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah, you know, like I mentioned before, that whole thing about decisions that are made for you, made on your behalf, or decisions that you make for yourself. You know, we didn't want to leave, but we were uprooted, we had to go. Then we're caught in the middle of the international system where you're just a, a number and a sea of numbers, where you don't have any agency over your life. And then we're on the shores of Indonesia looking at this thing saying, do we get on board or do we, do we not? If we get on board, it might take us across and, and seek salvation there. It's a terrible decision. It's a terrible intersection to be in. And it is something that, sadly, a lot of people have to face. Mm. The descriptions in, of this, this journey, the, the, the journey in the boat, um, and you start off and you're all excited. It's a boat. It's going along. And then on day two, the engines fail. And on day three, there's a storm. It's just an incredible journey. It is, it is. So I'm not going to tell you, but they have to go buy a copy outside <laughs> after the session. But no, 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 I'm just, uh, to, it's, Afghanistan is a landlocked country, so that didn't help. Um, for many of them, many of us on board is the first time being on the ocean. It is not a journey or a path or an experience that I would wish anybody to take. I'm against boat arrivals, even though I came on one because it is horrific, it is terrible, and we were saved at the last minute. You know, we had just gone through the storm, the boat was in pieces, it wouldn't last a few more hours, and we're scanning the horizon, scanning the horizon, and this small black dot comes closer and closer until it becomes, blocks out the horizon, and it's the MV Tampa, this 300 meter long mm -hmm. container ship. Can and I just butt in there? I got the feeling in the book that they knew you were there already, that, pe that some, some planes had come across. Why, yeah, didn't, so basically they, why the didn't something happen earlier? That's right, so uh, in the early 2000s, Australia's Coast Guard was out there as well as intelligence agencies on the ground in Indonesia looking for boat arrivals. So on the, the day of the storm, there was an Australian Coast Guard plane that had spotted our boat and send a radio feedback to, to headquarters and said, uh, there's a boat, perhaps we should intervene. And then someone made the decision to say, nah, she'll be all right, essentially. Um, they don't look like they're in distress. And then obviously the storm hits, and I described that in, in full detail. It's probably the, the most number one memory I have of the whole thing. And then the next day, the same plane does a circle overhead and then says, no, these guys need help and it radios, it maydays out, a mayday call to all the surrounding vessels you know, within proximity. And that call is answered by Captain Arnie Renan, captain of the MV Tampa. And so he charts course, comes, comes up, and in the kind of midday-ish, you know, we see this thing coming. Obviously, we were unaware of all of this mm. in the background. We didn't have radio contact with anybody. So we didn't know if we'd be rescued or not. We didn't know what this thing was. And then finally, it appeared out of nowhere. And it was just the most incredible feeling to go through what we went through the night before and then suddenly see us, this vessel out of nowhere, this giant container ship 
appear almost out of the blue. <laughs> and there's wonderful descriptions up. of your family climbing up. That's right. There's something else I wanted to ask you. So, you're, there are 400 odd refugees on the boat and five basically people traffickers. Boat so basically, crew. Yeah, what do you think about people traffickers? Mm -hmm. You know, they're, from our perspective, we think terrible people putting mm -hmm. your lives in danger, mm -hmm. and yet they also got you out when you needed to be out. What, what's you, when you think of people traffickers, when you think of those crew on that boat, what mm -hmm. do you think? I think whenever there is demand for something, whether it's legal or illegal, there will always be people who profit off, or on that. So there is incredible demand by people, displaced people, refugees in this instance, who want to get uh, to safety to seek asylum. And these guys are just filling in that gap, that demand in the market. So I see why they exist. They are obviously profit-driven. They're incredibly entrepreneurial. And the fact that they had packed 438 of us onto this rickety old wooden fishing boat you know, it's obviously profits over people. Um, so you can look at it from every angle that these guys are profit hungry, that they're evil, that they don't care if their people actually make it to the other end. And that's, all of that is true. But the reason they exist is because the system allows for them to exist. The refugee system, the way we deal with displacement, all of that. So they'll continue to be around. So you climb off on the boat and Maritime law, I think, from your book, suggests that you should be taken to Christmas Island. You're, you're close to Christmas Island of Australia, and yet somehow you get involved, without knowing, in this political wrangling about politicians in Australia. Yeah, that's right. It's, um, I can't see anyone. It's too dark. But do you guys remember the Tampa affair? Yeah, yeah, what a time, eh? Um, so we are rescued this week. 21 years ago, I think it was August the 25th or 26th, 2001. Oh, wow. So this book came out August last year to mark the 20th anniversary. We were, all, we were rescued here by the Norwegian container ship, the MV Tampa. Maritime law dictates that the, any vessel that has just performed a maritime rescue has the right, is actually duty bound to go to the nearest port of call to drop the people off for so many reasons. One. That the Tampa is now unseaworthy. They don't even have 400 life jackets on board, right? And so he, go, he heads towards Christmas Island, and as we head there, you know, he gets a call from the Australian Coast Guard, you know, obviously uh, being directly guided by the, as we later found out, by the Prime Minister's office in Canberra, to say, uh, stop right there, need to do some paperwork, because they were scrambling to try and deal with this situation. And unbeknownst to us, which I would later find out, was because we were caught in the middle of the 2001 Australian general election. And there's a bit of politicking going on, as we would later find out, that you know, John Howard, who was seeking a third term as prime minister, you know, was trailing slightly in the polls. Um, and if all goes well, for Kim Beasley, the opposition leader, come November, 10 weeks later, it would be Kim Beasley, the prime minister. So he needed to turn around his political fortune. Illegal migration or irregular migration or all of that, it was an issue, but it wasn't a top five issue for voters. And Howard Party was losing a lot of voters um, because of his new tax laws. And so here was a perfect opportunity handed on a platter to kind of stoke the voting base, divert attention away, and completely turn around the election campaign. And so, you know, I, I quote him in the book, you know, he gets up, I think it was at the Sydney Press Club or something like that, gets up and delivers an incredible one-liner that really hits home and he says, we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. And he goes on and he you know, talks in surgically precise wording that these people, they don't have Australian values, that they could be a national security threat, that they are aliens, that they are Q-jumpers, that they are this and that. You know, just planting the seeds in the minds of the Australian voter that we don't need to be looking at this through humanitarian lens, but rather a national security lens. And, and he it sends in the troops. And it worked brilliantly, because he, you know, he turned around the the, and won the 01 election, mm -hmm. and the, the, the policy impact of that, offshore detention, you know, um, Nauru and Manus Island and Christmas Island and all of that was off the back 
of the Tampa and what they called the Pacific Solution. And that still exists to this day. It still exists to this day. I'm interested, as a journalist, I'm interested in what was the media doing at the time, mm. both in Australia, but also outside Australia? It was, it became this massive, massive issue out of the blue, it seems, because uh, it was so theatrical. It was, you had this large cargo ship, there's the iconic image of the Tampa out there in the harbour, and it was being patrolled by Australian SAS troops. Howard was up there giving stump speeches every which way to say that, you know, these guys will never come to Australia, that they are national security threats, all of this, etc. But the incredible thing about the whole thing was the story became headline news for weeks. It was front page news. All people had was the image of the Tampa out there in the ocean, but not a single name or face of anyone on board because the, the Prime Minister's office would not allow anyone to get on board, to talk to people, and I'm not just talking about media, I'm talking about doctors, I'm talking about lawyers, or anyone working in the Refugee and Migrant Services team, no, nothing. No one was allowed to touch us, to talk to us, because to do so would mean that there might be a name or a face to humanize the story a little bit. So the whole thing was surgically driven uh, so that there, it was, there was no humanizing of it. So, so nobody was on your side? No one, no one. So we couldn't tell our story at all, for, for us, which was perfect for voters in Australia because if they saw maybe some woman holding children, if they saw people on hunger strike, if they saw a little old chubby of us there, you know, <laughs> sitting in the corner not having a good old time, then, you know, it might humanize the story a little bit. Yeah. So we didn't have anyone didn't have anyone, and but so then, it's awesome for me yeah. to finally <laughs> write our perspective. But then you get a message about someone called New Zealand. Yeah, someone called New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> Tell um, us about. So ba basically, every day we were just kind of being given updates uh, by the ship captain, and later on when it was boarded by the Australian SAS, the commander of the SAS unit, just kind of giving us updates on what was happening uh, with our case. We'd later find out through, you know, drip-feeding information that there were some lawyers working pro bono uh, for Liberty Victoria uh, in Melbourne who wanted to bring a, a case. So we were given updates about that. And then one day we get an update that uh, some of you, not all of you, but some of you have been accepted by New Zealand. Some guy puts his hand up and said, who's that? <laughs> who's that? And it later find out, someone pulls out a map and says, no, it's a country, this is it. You know, it's a bit <laughs> further away, a bit colder, but uh, the large majority, everyone was just like, oh man, take me off this boat. Because by then, we'd been there for, I think, four weeks out at sea. So we spent a total of 35 days at sea um, and arrived to New Zealand, September 27th, 2001. What was your first impression of New Zealand? Oh man, greenery, greenery, <laughs> lush. Just absolute gratitude. Um, we spent one day on Nauru, right? This little tiny old phosphate mine in the Pacific uh, before a New Zealand charter plane picked us up and dropped us off at Mangere here in South Auckland, as many of you know, which is home of the Mangere Refugee Resettlement Center. And it was a mixed emotion because we were the lucky ones, right? New Zealand had made this offer to say, look, we'll take them and we're gonna prioritize those in family units, right? Mum, dad, kids and any underage minors traveling alone, which would be later known as the Tampa Boys, many of whom would be later enrolled at Selwyn College, I believe, just down the road. Um, so that was about just less than 150 of us. The others, the single fathers, the eldest sons, those who had traveled alone and left their families behind because obviously they didn't want to bring them along for this treacherous journey, they were the first inmates in Australia's policy of offshore detention. Mm -hmm. They were sent to Nauru, and many of them would spend three, four, five years in, in that tropical prison before they too would be resettled mostly, thankfully, to New Zealand, some of them to Australia. But for us, you know, it's a mixed bag of will we ever see them again? Because five weeks at sea with people, you get very, very close. Some of them were my uncles, you know, I called them uncle. But for us, it was just so, so glad to be on solid, dry land. Um, I can't believe, it's very hard to describe the emotion. It's very hard to describe because 
we have been on the road from the moment we had left our little village in Afghanistan to September 27th or in the middle of the night, 28th, 2001. It was almost like a nine, eight, nine month journey. So to finally have stability, uh, man, it's, it's indescribable. And you were resettled in Christchurch. Yes. And I don't know what you're gonna think about this, but I've got a friend who's a priest who worked for a long time in Christchurch. And when the terror attack happened, she said that she wasn't surprised that if you were going to have a racist attack that you choose Christchurch. Mm. I don't know, I've not lived there, but was it tough growing up as a refugee in Christchurch? That's a really good question. You know, when, you, when, you, when, when refugee or ethnic stories are often told, um, and I don't want to downplay anyone's experiences, it is usually negative in that people re receive discrimination and oppression and, and racism and all of that. And that happens, not just in Christchurch, everywhere. Not just in New Zealand, around the world. But I had to be very honest with myself and say I had the best damn time, <laughs> all right? I was, yes, I looked different. I couldn't speak the language. I learned my ABCs at the Mangere Refugee Resettlement Center. I was in ESOL. We were the only Middle Eastern kids down our street. But I just, when I was recalling this, I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to. I wanted to say, yeah, no, people were racist and this and that. But to be honest, I couldn't. Because I didn't recall a single incident of, of direct racial prejudice aimed at me or my family or my mum and my sister who both wear headscarves. And I want to tell that story too because too often we tangle ourselves up and say, you know, that society is all messed up, that this and that. And yes, that is true. There are incredible truths in that. It's also very good every now and then to say, actually, it's not all that bad every damn time. And that's what I wanted to say. And just on that point, I want to make a reading. You guys will never understand this feeling, but I'll try my best anyway. This is when we were resettled to Christchurch, came off the plane, and um, we're about to go see our, our house for the first time. Paradise was a state house on Ballantyne Ave in Upper Rickerton with a white picket fence, a vibrant green front yard, a fireplace complete with a brick chimney and a cream weatherboard exterior. Every family had a team of volunteers pick them up from the airport, everyday Kiwis who had replied to a Red Cross ad in the local paper. They had received some training from Refugee and Migrant Services, an agency that would be a critical support for us over the next few years. Half a dozen volunteers had been assigned to the Nazari family. There was Gavin and Prue and Colin and Ola and our favorites, Chris and Jan. These volunteers have become an integral part of our lives. On that first journey, our volunteers drove us along Memorial Ave to Island Road to Church Corner and finally Ballantyne Ave, a tree-lined street with a row of neat houses set back from the road. Walking through that blue front door into our new home was like emerging from underwater and taking a huge gulp of air. Like, to go through what we went through and to suddenly someone pick us up from the airport and say, this is your new home, that's immeasurable, you know, that's immeasurable and that will always stick with me. And so I have, to answer your question, I had incredibly positive uh, childhood growing up in, in Christchurch. Um, we were welcomed by the kids down our street, we were welcomed by our classmates, we enrolled in the local footy club, we just got on with it. And um, if there was racial prejudice aimed directly at us, perhaps our skins were so thick that it just bounced off. You know, because we'd gone through hell and back, right? <laughs> your words can't hurt me. What I don't about know. for your parents? You know, I'm, you're young and, and I'm not. And I sort of think about what it would be like if I was your parents going to Afghanistan and trying to make a new life there. It's a really good way of putting it because it was exactly like that. You know, my mum my, my and dad came over to New Zealand in their mid 40s. They had all their formative experiences in Afghanistan all their families, all their cultural values, everything was Afghan. So for them to be picked up and dropped in Christchurch, New Zealand, it was, you couldn't get two polar opposites. Because we were little kids, we just soaked it up. We just soaked it up, learned the language, became friends with the kids down our street, went to school, we had good structure. But for them, it was really, really difficult because learning the language in your mid-40s is really tough. It's not easy. Um, picking up the sh social norms and the cultural norms of a new country that is so, so different is tough. 
not having your friends and your close relatives and all of that close by is incredibly difficult. So they had a really, really rough ride of it. Um, but I think wh where they took strength from was seeing the development and the growth of us kids. Seeing us just get by and become friends and excel in sports or, in my case, spelling bee. Um, <laughs> that gave him a bit of pride that, yeah, you know what? Number three speller in <laughs> New Zealand. Number three, I have to humble myself. He was a bronze. <laughs> um, but, you know, seeing our growth, uh, I think, was a source of incredible strength for them because it was difficult. Like, you're a, f eight, you're a fully grown adult with agency in your own life and then you get put in a country where you're a toddler again, where you have to be spoon-fed and handheld every step of the way. And it's, a, it's not only, um, it's not only a, a blow to your identity, it's a psychological blow, you know, that was it even worth coming here? Mm. And so there are many refugees who come here who, if they don't have the right support, if they don't have a really tight family network, if they don't have a good communal support around them, they really, really struggle. But thankfully, you know, the Tampa families, we all came together and we have a really tight-knit community in Christchurch and we're still tight to this day. You know, I went to school with most of those kids, still friends to this day, and um, I interviewed many of them for this book as well. So we had the great fortune of, of that, everyone just kind of leaning on one another for support. Talk about fortune and New Zealand has what I think is a pretty tiny refugee quota. Mm. I think it was 1,000 and then it went up to 1,500, but I don't think we even meet it. Yeah. Um, what's your message for the government? Mm. I think with regards to refugees and refugee resettlement, a lot of the focus tends to be on the number of people that are lucky enough to call New Zealand home. You know, we, we ch chew over, should it be 750, should we double it to 1,500, should we go to 2,000? We chew over those details. I used to work at Treasury, right? I know the numbers. Oh, shit, it's going to cost us a bit. Um, <laughs> but to be honest, if I'm really honest, those 2,000, when there's tens of millions of people displaced, is nothing, right? It's a drop in the ocean. And so in, on some instance, it's almost meaningless whether we take 1,000 or 2,000. It's like, well, it's not really doing much, is it? But for those extra couple hundred families, oh man, it, it means the world. And so if we are able to take 1,500 or 2,000 or two and a half or whatever the number might be, it doesn't change the world, but for those extra couple hundred families every year, it, it, it means the absolute world to them. And you know we can chew over the cost of it, the monetary cost of it, uh, but the fact of the matter is, and one of the main things I wanted to get across in this book is that yes, you know, there is a financial cost. If you wanted to look at, firstly, you have to ask, is that a good way of, of measuring our citizenship? Like, oh, it's a cost, that's a plus, that's a cost, right? So you have to think about that. But let's say you do use that as the, as the, as the filter through which you measure people's worth in society. There is an upfront cost in health, in education, in resettlement, in welfare, in housing, undeniable. But after a while, whether it's one year or two or five or 10 years, whatever it might be, these people, just like the Tampa families, just like my family, you learn to stand up on your own two feet. You learn to be independent again and you learn to start to contribute back. And that was a story I wanted to tell. My favorite chapter in this book is called The Kiwi Dream, right? And I believe I, my family and the Tampa families are living that every day. We arrived to this country, didn't mention this, when we were rescued by the Palapa, we weren't allowed to carry anything with us because it would slow down the rescue process. So we just, we just had the clothes on our back. I didn't even have shoes on, which I'd later regret very much because the deck of the Tampa got very hot. <laughs> so we arrived to this country with literally nothing, just the clothes on our back. Didn't know the language or the culture or the customs or the financial base or nothing. But after a while, you learn to stand up, learn the language, get a job, get educated, start a business, do whatever. And now, a lot of people ask, well, what are those people up to now? What are the Tampa boys up to? What are the Tampa families up to? And they're all just getting onto it, right? They're business owners and they're university students and they've got student loans, they've got mortgages, they've got, they're just part and parcel of middle-class New Zealand, just trying to get by. And their story is a little bit different to what most people is here, in, here sitting in this auditorium, but we're all kind of on the same rocker all going forward. 
We don't have much time if we're going to throw it open to questions. Yes. Um, do you want to bring the lights up and move to, to a to microphone if you, if yes. you want to? Yes, I'd love to take some questions. Um, and while you guys are thinking about that, um, just wanted to say a huge, it means that so much to me, the reception that this book has received. Uh, it's done uh, really, really well. My publishers are really stoked about it. Um, but also, the number one feedback I get when people uh, come up to me is that it gives them a sense of perspective. Right? Not many people know what refugees go through. Not many people know what it's like to be displaced or the state of Afghanistan right now. But it gives them a huge, huge sense of perspective on, on the whole issue. So I just want to say thank you to every one of you all. Cheers. <laughs> Shout outs to the tech team. That was awesome. <laughs> Yes. Uh, Salam alaikum. Wa alaikum. Well, welcome. Um, I was in Quetta uh, in 1990, um, saw the refugee camps, and I was in my 20s. Then it was, as in Charlie Wilson's war, the, uh, it was, we didn't know that the Americans were covertly funding what was the Mujahideen. Um, my question to you is, what is the difference between, did the Mujahideen just become the Taliban? Mm. Or what, what's the difference there? Thank so, you. And the Muslim hospitality mm. that I received in Pakistan Three and cups Iran of tea. is <laughs> yeah, second it. to none. <laughs> thank you so much. And I want our other Kiwis to understand that. Oh, thank you so yeah. much. That's a really good question. You know, the firstly, uh, the first part of your question, um, for those who don't know, the Mujahideen were these kind of, uh, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in 79, the CIA wanted to make Afghanistan uh, the Russia's version of Vietnam. Just like they got stuck in Vietnam, they wanted to make Afghanistan like that for the Russians. So they funded and armed and trained all these rebels uh, known as the Mujahideen that did exactly that. They made Afghanistan Russia's Vietnam. They got stuck there for 10 years and then they left in 1989. Now when these guys left, these, these, these rebels who are incredibly well-funded, well-armed, um, they started to fight amongst themselves and, and, and so they had different enclaves that they'd fight over. They didn't necessarily become the Taliban. Some of the commanders did sign pacts of loyalty and agreements so that maybe they would work in conjunction with the Taliban, uh, but the Taliban are, are, are separate. Uh, the second part of the question, yes, uh, I think something that is, uh, for those who haven't had the great uh, experience of traveling across the Middle East, you know, um, Hospitality is one of the key tenets of uh, Islamic society. You know that the door is always open if you need. I and mean, this was my physical experience as a little kid. You know, the door to our house was always open. So someday we might get like a nomad or a tra traveler or a shepherd uh, coming in at a, in our little village, and they might just say, "Look, I need a place to stay," and they just stay there, get food, and it's just exactly like that. You know, there's a saying, you know, three cups of tea." There's actually a book called Three Cups of Tea." Uh, where you know anyone who comes into your house, you offer them uh, three cups of tea. Um, so, thank you for raising that point. Anyone else? Yes. Yeah. No, you, we'll talk, but you, you come to the mic. Yeah. Um, in the time you've been away from Afghanistan, the Taliban are back. What's it been like watching that from afar? Yeah, it's been incredibly tough. Obviously, the Taliban took over this time last year. You know, this week is the, the one-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul, which is incredible to think about, right? That, that was a year ago this day when we saw those airlifts happening. Uh, personally, for me, it's been pretty emotional, you know, trying to help people get out of the country, trying to push Immigration New Zealand to, to do something. To, and, and they've been pretty responsive. Um, if there's one thing that, you know, we've got, what, five, six hundred people in this room today, if there's one thing you guys do, it'd be pretty cool to send a little email to your local MP and say, hey, we haven't forgotten about Afghanistan. Uh, because if they receive a few emails from people named Jan and Barbara and whatever else, it means a bit more than Muhammad and Abbas <laughs> and Ali trying to get their cousins here. So that would mean a hell of a lot. Levity. I didn't uh, hi. First of all, um, thank you for showing a positive image of refugees. 
with this incredibly inspiring book. And as a Hazara refugee, yeah, I would like to thank you for telling the truest narrative of persecution of Hazaras in Afghanistan and the neighboring countries. I was just curious to know if there was any chapter that did not make the final edit, um, hopefully giving you an idea to write the sequel <laughs> and hopefully <laughs> educating more people about Hazaras yeah. in Afghanistan in particular and refugees in general. Thank you. That's a really good book and salam alaikum. Um, it's called After the Tampa. Maybe we should do like a Before the Tampa <laughs> extended book. No. Um, uh, yeah, the, you know, the first draft of this book was, well, it was pretty angry. It was really angry. I found it. I read it and I thought, here I am. Um, there's a chapter in particular aimed mostly at Australians and particularly the Australian government where essentially I was just doing you know, you guys are racist, that this and that, that, you know, stuff you and look at me and look how well we've done and rah, rah, rah. I didn't, that didn't really sit well with me, even though it's how I felt, because I wanted someone uh, in far north Queensland who voted for Howard in 01 to pick up this book and not feel like they're being lectured, but rather to realize, wow, we were used uh, really, really well in the 01 election. And, and the, the, the key point there is you're never gonna get people to come across to your side of the view or your side of the fence by putting the finger in their face and telling them that you're racist, that you're an extremist, that you're a fascist. And that's just not a refugee thing, that's a politics thing generally. When have you ever seen it, like at the protests in parliament, someone goes up and says, no, you guys are a conspiracy theorist, that you're extremist, that you're rah, 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 that you're dumb. And then them being like, oh my God, thank you so much for telling me. That was, <laughs> wow, wow, that was, I did not know that. Oh, you have enlightened my day. So I'd, that's never gonna happen, right? So I didn't, that's one chapter or one draft that didn't make the cut. But to your second point about, um, you know, and I think we might finish on this question. I about, think there's one more question at the back. Okay, uh, about, about Hazaras generally. It's a story not told in Afghanistan, sadly. Uh, it's a story perhaps that we don't tell ourselves all that often um, about our origin story, that perhaps we should be proud of our ethnicity because for so often, for centuries we've been so downtrodden and stamped, you know, stomped on that it's easier to keep our head low. But when given the opportunity, Hazaras around the world, particularly there's a really large Hazara Australian population in, in Australia, they've done incredibly well. Some of you may have seen that uh, the first uh, hijab wearing senator in Australia is, uh, was elected in the last election and, and she's a Hazara Australian. Uh, and there are so many other instances as well in the book that I highlight. So. Uh, Telling Afghan stories, uh, on your second point about are there more books, yeah, definitely there might be. Uh, if you've heard of The Kite Runner, I'm writing a book also set in Afghanistan. It'll probably do better than that, so keep an eye out. Um, <laughs> so I might not come back, I might not come back. Yeah. And the final question. Thank you. Um, Abbas, a, a little levity. Um, the ABs need you. You've just got time to get down to Christchurch before tomorrow night. <laughs> <laughs> Can, can Thanks you tell for us, can you tell us about your next door neighbor, Richie? Yes, thank you so much for bringing that up. <laughs> Firstly, I think Scott Robson should have the job, I mean, as a one-eyed <laughs> one Cantabrian. Uh, yeah, you know, it's so funny, it's just classic little old New Zealand that you grow up and some little kid down your street ends up becoming an all-black. So we were at 23 Ballantyne Ave, and number 36 was a little guy called Richie Maunga. And so uh, him and I went to school together, you know, uh, taught him how to play rugby, and um, <laughs> look where he is now, right? Uh, so it's just insane. I love that about little old New Zealand where that kind of stuff happens. And you know, even just last night, and I, I'm, she might be in the audience tonight. So like, I don't know, 10, 11 years ago, me and some friends, we were in Wellington just for a weekend, uh, and we are in Oriental Bay, Beautiful day, summer's day, we're there, it's gorgeous, and we see this giant stick, like a pole, like a electric power pole there in the sand. I don't know how it got there, it was just this giant log. Me and the guys are like, it'll be awesome if we could get it upright and stick it in the sand, as you do. And we're doing this, and it's like maybe 10 meters high, I don't know. We did this, we're all chanting, and there's ladies like uh, just watching us clapping, taking a few photos, and we all start climbing this thing, we all climb to the top, rah, rah, rah. and then we're like, maybe you should climb that. And then this lady's a bit older, and I was like, she was like, 
really? I was like, yeah, go for it. And she actually does. And I'm like, oh shit, she's actually doing it. <laughs> she climbs to the top, grabs this wonderful photo of her standing on this totem pole. It was incredible. And then last night she comes up to me and says, do you recognize this photo? And, <laughs> and it's us, you know, just little old New Zealand, you know, one degree of separation. Hooligans. Hooligans, exactly, exactly. Thank you all so much. Thank you. I have to do a Māori, if we can. Nō rera, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. And Abbas, tashakur, huda hafez. Thank you very much. Kuda hafez, everybody. Thank, Thank you. Tēnākwe. You. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi o Tamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.